Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Hey, Walter Parks, thank you ever so much for that theme song. And if anybody out there listening would like to know more about Walter Parks, WalterParks.com is a great place to great place to look. And if you'd like to reach out to me, Nave at JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E, Nave at jamesnave.com. I would love to hear from you. Davine Dial, thank you for so much for managing WPVM-FM. And if any of you would like to write with me and my creative writing partner, Allegra Houston, on Saturday morning, we have a, a Zoom gathering, 10 o'clock Mountain Time or noon Eastern Time, and, and we write together. We call it the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week. And our idea is to let our imaginations lead the dance with our rational minds and just write something fanciful. Only takes an hour. And if you'd like to join us, door is always open. Imaginativestorm.com. Imaginativestorm. Dot com if you'd like to spend a little time with us on Saturday morning. And as you know, if you've been listening to this show, sometimes I'll invite somebody I've known for many years, good friends. We just pick the conversation right up and off we go as if it had never stopped. And then other times I meet somebody on this call I don't even know very much. And today that's the, that's the case. I have Mary Alice Arthur with me today. And the reason I invited Mary Alice onto this call is because I have a regular gathering on Zoom with some storytellers once a month on, on Wednesday evening. And we've been doing that for quite a while. I don't organize it. And the storytellers gather and it's it's a workshop, it's a salon, it's a storytelling think tank. So last, last month, uh, Mary Alice came onto the show and she was a wonderful storyteller. She had a lot to say and I thought, this woman can talk and I would like to get to know her. So today, Mary Alice, we're going to do something that I love to do and have often done is just get to know each other on air and we'll broadcast it for all to hear. Mary Alice, author, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. So nice to see you and thanks for the invitation to get to know you. Hey, that's the whole point of this. And in many ways, we, we talk about storytelling and the reason I invited you to come on is because you and I share an interest in, in storytelling mm -hmm. and storytelling is a way to get to know each other. So in a sense, even though you and I aren't formally creating a story here, we are developing a get to know narrative on air so people can can mm -hmm. hear hear how that works. So I know that in your work, you work with people who aren't particularly identified as official storytellers. They're people who work in different kinds of environments and they have to express themselves. They have to say something, maybe at a meeting or maybe on the page. And you talk a lot about how to access the story, engage your own personal story. And so I wanted to just start out by asking you about the internal notion of telling a story to oneself. How do you do that first? And then when you're starting to tell your story to yourself, how do you listen 
And what do you listen for? So starting internally, both telling and listening, and then going from there, how do you see that working? If you can imagine everybody in the world wearing a different pair of glasses, I've got this bright pink box here, and I'm just going to open it up and I'm going to take out these glasses. These are my blue light glasses that I ordered so that I could sit in front of the Zoom screen a long time and not go nuts. A story is like a pair of glasses. It's your lens on the world. It's the sense and meaning you're making out of what happens to you. And that naturally occurs in the human being all the time. We're always telling ourselves a story about what things mean. So you and I might be at the same space-time event, also known as a meeting, and something happens in that space-time event, and then we get together afterwards, and we're, we're, we decide we're going to have a little debrief. I have a friend who likes to say, we must debrief, we must debrief. And that's where we share how different or how similar our stories are of what we experienced in that moment. So probably everybody's been in one of those kind of meetings, and it might be a family gathering, it might be a time when friends were sitting around coffee, or it might be at work when something happened. And one person says, well, it's about time she spoke up about that. And another person says, who does she think she is? And the third person's just silent because they've never seen anything like it before. And they don't exactly know what to think. So the little voice in the head is us telling ourselves stories about what's going on. The interesting thing is that most of us are unaware of that. So it's like being in a car going somewhere and realizing suddenly that you're in the passenger side, you're not in the driver's seat like you thought you were. Who's driving? It's actually your story that's driving, taking you down a road you didn't expect until you become aware of it. I was in front of the health food store the other day, SIDS here in Taos, New Mexico, and I was having this conversation with a woman whom I know, and we were talking about you know, the subjects that we talk about in these times. And she said, well, perception is reality, implying that how she perceived it was reality. And of course, when you are in a meeting or in any kind of environment, your perception is really all you have to work with. And then it becomes the reality or the story we tell. So how do we find common ground when we're telling multiple stories is there a truth that we're rising to, or are we just telling multiple truths that look like some great field of poppies or flowers that grow wild in the summer? <laughs> or a chessboard where we're moving the pieces around trying to figure out what the game is. <laughs> it's kind of like that, actually. I used to have a, a colleague who said to me, between the truth and the truth lies the truth. <laughs> and now that I know something about narrative, I kind of get what he was after. Because what is cold? Cold could be the absence of warmth, but my perception of it depends on what I believe cold is. So I live in Ohio, but my middle sister lives in Minneapolis. And she tells me I'm a complete wuss because only Minnesotans know what real cold is like. And I would assume if somebody I knew lived in Tuktiuktuk in Canada, they would look at the Minnesotans and go, you don't know what cold is like. On that level, it's kind of relative. Cold is on a continuum. So the interesting thing I'm thinking right at the moment about how we're treating the world is we tend to believe our version of the truth is the version 
That's true. And we're willing to fight about those kind of perceptions without realizing most things are a continuum. So gender is a continuum and our young people are busy trying to show us this is the case. There's not male one end and female one end. There's a gradation of reality inside of the human being. All of us has masculine and feminine inside of us. So there's not just one or the other, but we on one level live in a duality and we enjoy that because it gives us contrast. So how do we tell stories from the point of view of that spectrum? I know what you mean, and I know that people are now beginning to notice they have more than one element in their system, if you will. I've always identified as a male. And yet, the more I've been thinking about how the pronouns have been revised, the more I'm beginning to wonder, well, now, wait a minute, what's in there that I can explore? You know, can I climb down my spine and notice a rainforest in one part of my body and mm -hmm. a desert in another and the sea in another part of my body? I don't have an answer for that. And yet I wonder what else is in there. When you're working with businesses and with people trying to tell their story, do you get into that or do you have to approach it in a more beginner mind way? So how do you work with all of those kind of factors when you're just beginning to help people understand this? And what is your approach to the beginners? The first thing is to realize that every human being is a storyteller. So, you know, we tend to call everybody a storyteller these days, poets, musicians, politicians authors. Oh, what a storyteller they are. Sometimes we mean that in a positive light and sometimes we mean it in a, in a, you know, like in New Zealand where I lived for almost 30 years. If you say to somebody, tell me stories, what you actually are saying is don't lie to me. The interesting thing is that the English language has no word for not story. Fiction and nonfiction are parts of story. They're not opposites. They're actually part of the same field. They just are articulating themselves in a different format. So we don't have any word for not stories. By this point in time in the world, storytelling has got a bit more of a sense around it because people have started hearing this word bandied about all the time. These days, people are interested in story because I believe we're in what I would call the wave of influence. People want to influence other people. So they realize that story is important. How you talk about something. And we, we're seeing it a lot in the form of branding. Leaders these days want to be able to tell a good story because they know that we want to deal with people we trust. And the fastest way for you to understand me or connect with me is to tell a story. People used to say the shortest distance between two people is a smile. And I think the second shortest distance is a story. Scientists say that we already hear storytelling in the womb. So we're already conditioned to use story as the way that our brain holds on to our experiences and makes sense and meaning of the world. So from a neuroscience point of view, we are wired for story. So if your partner comes home and you go, honey, how was your day? You're probably not going to get a list that you can fact check. You're getting a story. That's actually how we hold on to the information we have. That's why people in general, if you say, can you remember the annual report from last year? They'll go, no. But do you remember that story about so-and-so who made that major error? Oh, yes. The first thing to remember and what I tell people is there's no such thing as one story. All of us are a story field. We are the intersection of all the stories that were told about us, that we tell about ourselves, the stories we receive from our culture, from our upbringing, from our lineage, from our gender, from the way that society thinks about things. We are that intersection. And any kind of group, like a family 
or an organization is a collection of stories too. It's not a single story either. So an organization is the stories that people inside of it tell, that the leadership tell, that this department tells, that that department tells, that the people tell about each other, that the clients and the customers are telling, and that helps to make the story of the brand. So people who are brand experts have become very aware that that's the case, and they're trying to manage the story field. That's actually what they're trying to do. So when you're starting off working with somebody, it's really that question, what's your intention? Are you trying to get to grips with how you understand the world and give yourself more space to do so? Are you trying to have your team function well together or your family live well together? What are you trying to do? And that's where you start with wherever they can. One of the things I say to people is I've understood over time that the geography of the story and this is from my friend, Paul Costello, who works out of Washington, D.C. He's done a lot of work with major conflict areas like Northern Ireland and Israel-Palestine and things. He says the geography is a really important thing to know where you are in the story tells you how you should approach it. What's the most common geography of a story? Beginning, middle, and end. As the film director, Jean-Luc Godard says, as every story has a beginning, a middle, and an end, but not necessarily in that order. What's the beginning about? The beginning is newness. It's about something starting. We're on the beginning of a journey. That's interesting. The middle of a journey is about confusion, conflict, change. The stories we love the most have the messy middle. And we love stories like that because we want to find out, is the bad guy actually a good guy in disguise? Are the two of them going to get back together again? Will the ring ever make it to Mount Doom? You're like, we're committed to this story. And then the end is about completion. I've been a facilitator for 25 years. So I've looked and worked with groups all over the place. And I've had this stunning realization about 2019. Oh my goodness, a meeting is actually just a story unfolding. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. But what Paul told me is that the beginning has a beginning, a middle, and an end. The middle has a beginning, a middle, and an end. This pattern repeats itself. So conflict comes if I'm in a meeting with people and I believe that they are in the same place in the story as I am, and they are not. Or when I believe they're in the same story as I'm in, and they are not. So we go at life like a bull at a gate going, everybody should be in the same place in the story as me, and they aren't. Nobody can be in the same place as the story as you because you have your own unique perspective. Yeah, in the work that Allegra Houston and I do with our Imaginative Storm Rider training, we often talk about storytelling from the point of view of writing poetry or a memoir or a novel. And we talk at length about where the story starts. And we say often that the story starts when an equilibrium is disrupted. Something happens and that's where the story begins. And of course, the breaking of an equilibrium would have a beginning, a middle and an end. And then you go from there and then the story ends when you have somehow resolved that disruption. People around the world tell stories. There's the geography of the story, and then there's the geography of thought. So in American culture, we think in a linear way. In Asian culture, which you've spent time in Asia, it's more circular. There is a reason that the emperor of Japan's symbol is the giant chrysanthemum because there are petals within petals within petals. And if you're in the Maori culture and the indigenous culture of New Zealand, 
the reason indigenous cultures had such a conflict with colonial structures is because the colonial structure is linear. Forward is going in front of me, away from me in that direction, and, and hopefully up. But in the Maori culture, the past is in front of you and the future is behind you because nobody lives in the future, Maori people say to each other. We learn from our ancestors. We are in this great line of ancestors. And I heard this word only this week, forcestors. I'd never heard the word forcester. Therefore, responding and, and supported from those who came before us and the ancestors of those who come after us. And that gives us great responsibility. It's a whole different look at time. So when you are working with different groups of people around the world, how do you change your approach when you are working, say, in an environment you know is not a linear environment? I remember I was doing some poetry work in Singapore. We were at an international school. It was a school with a lot of students from Singapore. And of course, I was very Americanized and wanted to talk about poetry and telling the story and getting out there and putting yourself out. And these students didn't respond. They just stood there and looked at me like I was out of my mind because I was trying to offer them a linear way of going about it. And I had no idea that what I was saying made no sense to them. Yeah, I've, ne I've never forgotten being in a, a conference in Malaysia. And I was with a Turkish woman who was living in the States for a long time. So she's in front of the group and she's talking about, you've got to slay the dragon. And everybody's eyes started to go around. She didn't catch that at all. Because in, in Asian culture, especially in Chinese culture, a dragon is lucky. You would never kill the dragon. But she was operating on the Celtic mythology, the European-based mythology of which Turkey has been a part off and on over time. It's really the crossroads between East and West. So interesting culture in its own right. So she didn't see that. And then... She said to people, so who's willing to stand on a chair and kind of proclaim who you want to be? And there was this tremor that went around the room. I was kind of looking, going, what's going on? Finally, somebody did it. But later on, I learned that actually when students were being punished in this culture, they were made to stand on their chairs. That was a blame thing and a shame thing. But in order not to shame the presenter, which would be even worse, that, that she would lose face, this person stood on the chair anyway in direct contradiction to their own storyline they'd grown up in so that she would not be shamed. So it's like, wow. So for me, having a facilitation practice and a hosting practice, I'm part of the art of hosting field, which is all about how do you host and harvest conversations that matter. That training has been invaluable to me because what I wanna hear first is other people's voices before I start. And there are some ways I can find out like my first thing would have been, so when you think of poetry, what attracts you about it and what do you know about it? I would have been finding out from them first, so I have a field to work into. But it's kind of interesting. So this moment for you in front of the group was actually the messy middle of the storyline. So I want to just go back to the geography of the story for a moment. The best thing you can do when something starts is to kind of be clear about your intention. Oh, I'm in a new relationship. How would I like it to be? This is a new job for me what how am i going to learn the field and get to find out the stories that can help me because people always share stories that help you to figure out what to do and what not to do they do that obliquely they kind of tell you stories they look like stream of consciousness but they're actually anecdotal stories to help you get into the culture well when that happened to me the fellow who had asked me to do <laughs> it was a slamboid who lived in singapore 
And he was going around to all the schools teaching these students about Poetry Slam. And he'd even had other people I knew from the Poetry Slam world come and engage with these students. So he did not brief me on the version of Slam that was being presented in his arena. He had already calibrated his work with these students and he just dropped me in there. I had no idea. So he didn't host you at all. (laughs) Well, he he was like, you know, we're going to talk about something. I'm going to go, great. You know, here's Nave from the States. He's a poetry slammer. We're going to now slam. For these students, I later learned what slam meant to them was we're going to read our work in a very gracious accepting sort of way, not the poetry slam that he had redefined it. I I didn't know that. So I I was swimming in this classroom of different object, different narratives, and I didn't actually understand it. I later figured it out and we talked about it. Here we are back to the brief or back to the hosting because he didn't really know to say that, or maybe he forgot. He thought you were then the same part of the story he was Mm -hmm. and you weren't not. You've suddenly landed in the messy middle. So what's the best thing to do in the messy middle of a story? Oh my goodness. We had such a loving relationship. And suddenly I thought I joined the best group in the world, but now I think you people are really strange. This always happens in any group that's going to form into a better group that they, they first fall in love with each other and then they fall out of love and go, what the heck? So the best thing you can do right at that moment, because what people try to do is get out of the pain and confusion. Confusion is not fun. Human beings don't like being confused and we don't like being uncomfortable and we don't like being in the not knowing. Intriguingly, the world at this moment has dropped us directly into the messy middle of the human story and dropped us into confusion, fear, and panic, and not knowing. And this is actually a very fruitful place for new beginnings if you can stay curious. So the question in the messy middle of any story is, what's your practice to stay more curious? That's why people say mindfulness is great, or meditation, or I go swimming, or I run around the block, I pet the dog, I play with my children. What's your practice to actually calm yourself down enough to be curious in the messy middle? And what would be a suggestion or two you would make for that? Breathe deeply. The first thing you can do is breathe. Because the the first thing that human beings do when they get a shock, they start to breathe very shallowly at the top. You know, when people are panicking, they can hardly get a breath. So if you can actually breathe all the way down to the bottom of your stomach, it begins to calm the nervous system and you begin to become more curious. The challenge we're in as a humanity right now, especially around some of the big challenges we're facing, is that people have allowed themselves to really fall into anxiety and fear over a long time. And that narrows our view. It makes all of our stories really black and white. It's good or it's bad. You know, this is one argument I have with the hero's journey. I've been known to say, should we kill off the hero's journey? People are like, what? It's become so predominant as a model, as a form, and especially being pumped out of Hollywood and out of all the branding specialists, that the nuance has fallen out of it. Before you go on, review the hero's journey or the heroic journey, please, so people will know what that is. Uh, this form comes from Joseph Campbell, who studied the great, some of the great stories around the world and realized that there was a pattern to them. And it is usually that hero either gets to the top of the mountain and goes, is that all there is? Or here's the call, the call to adventure, the call to challenge, whatever it is. First of all, says, no, not me, rejects the call, but eventually goes out following the call. 
and then goes through a series of challenges, usually has finds on the on the other side of the challenge some help in the form of a wise mentor. In fact, the word mentor comes from the old Greek myth of Telemachus looking for his father Odysseus, and mentor was the, the servant that, that helped him, but was actually the goddess Athena in, in disguise. So we still have that word mentor as the kind of wise support it's still in our in our language and our culture to be looking for the wise support. So there there are challenges the hero faces, but has support enough from guides, mentors, and other assorted beings who help get him or her over the threshold to find the elixir, the treasure to bring back to the community. But inside of the Hollywood structure, that's often gotten stripped down to the sole hero. You know, like there's one savior being usually. A masculine savior being uh, who has to who does the big sacrifice or saves the day or does whatever. So what got stripped out of that? There are a couple of things on that one is the the fact that no hero can do the job alone. They need others to support them. And that the toughest part of this journey by far is in fact not being in the belly of the whale. That's the deepest part of this particular pattern in the belly of the whale speaks to Jonah in the belly of the whale, the darkest part of his journey, thinking God had forsaken him. But eventually the hero has to come back and bring the boon or the elixir back to the community. And that, in fact, is the hardest thing of all. So at the end of the Lord of the Rings movies, you'll notice that Frodo goes off on the ship into the West because he's been wounded with a wound that can never heal. He cannot fit back into society anymore. That's actually the big challenge. So the reason I'm a bit like, have we had enough of this? Is because and Campbell said himself, these were male stories. I couldn't find the feminine pattern. So he looked into fairy tales and folk tales to try to look for the feminine. The reason he couldn't find it is because women's stories didn't get told to men. So anthropologists that collected these stories didn't get women's stories. So we disappeared out of this narrative. So when I listen to the hero's journey, I go, well, that's not what it's like for me as a woman. Women don't go to the top of the mountain and go, what else is there? We go down. So one of the patterns for the story of that a woman, woman does in her journey of transformation is the story of Inanna becoming the queen of heaven and earth. Inanna going down into the underworld to visit her sister, Arishkagal, whose husband has died. But at each of the seven gates, she's asked to give up something till she finally is stripped naked and stands in front of her sister, who is the dark opposite to her, and her sister kills her. Like, who do you think you are? Inanna gets saved, though, because she has some support on the other side. Her uncle sends some little beings to help rescue her and bring her back to life. And she's able to integrate having faced the shadow to become the wholeness of who she is. So that's more the feminine journey. So in the heroic journey, the men leave the ordinary world after some sort of disruption. The tree falls over, somebody's murdered or comet hits or whatever, and they leave the ordinary world. And then they go out into the unknown, meet a few mentors along the way. They say, keep going, don't give it up. They fight a few battles here and there. Now they're headed to the top of the mountain. And then they come finally to the mountain, the great peak, and then they fight their way up and they grab the prize, and then they come back down, bump into a few problems along the way, return to the ordinary world with their prize, and it's transformed because they single-handedly have done all of the deed. Whereas the female version would be same tree falls, disruption. You leave the ordinary world nice and happy, and you don't want to, and then you go out, 
And instead of thinking, I've got to go to the mountain, I'm going to the womb, to the innermost cave. I'm going deep down. Mentors along the way, a few battles, some obstacles, and then you enter the cave and you go down, 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 down into the cave. And there you have the big fight. Then you yeah. finally work your way out. And then you go back to the ordinary world with the gift that changes everybody. The difference, as I understand what you're saying, from the female point of view, there's much, much, much more help along the way, more collaboration. Yeah. Whereas with the male, they do it all on their own. But in the end, they get celebrated. When the woman returns, she might even bring the whole crew back to the village in the story. Whereas the man would just come back with a bloody sword in the prize and say, here, I've taken care of you now. Where's my supper? Here's the head of the beast. Where's the princess? I get to marry her. But there is a difference in the way that men and women tell stories about power. When I look at the Hollywood versions, uh, the hero gets beaten up uh, a lot, but he gets things added to him continuously. Whereas the Inanna story is talking about women saying, we are stripped naked. We have to give up what came before. We have to look at ourselves in the eye and go, can I own my shadow? Because until I do that, I don't have my power. We have to strip down and then come back out again. It's like being reborn almost. There is a kind of level of that. And that speaks to how women go through a physical transition to become women. I think that's the challenge for men. There isn't one. We are in our culture miss missing the element of initiation and rites of passage. I think that's a challenge for our societies because that's what they're supposed to provide. Only they're not doing that anymore. How does a man know he's a man? It is interesting because I didn't have the rite of passage, except maybe my grandfather gave me a shotgun. And I, I once wanted to prove my prowess. So I mm -hmm. took the shotgun out and I went down behind where we lived in the country and some logging had taken place. So there was a great deal of underbrush. And this is the first time I knew I was in the wrong. First time I realized it. Yeah. So I was down there with my shotgun, 12, 13, maybe 14, I doubt, probably 13. And I saw the covey of quail underneath the brush. I thought, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to impress my father. So I fired into the covey of quail and I managed to, to kill five or six of them all on the ground. But the minute I pulled the trigger and saw those quail flopping around on the ground, I knew I was deeply in the wrong. And when I carried them back to prove my hunting prowess, I knew I was lying. I had really done a, a terrible thing. I didn't, didn't play fair. And that was as close as I ever got to any kind of ritual movement that would challenge the transition from being a boy to a man. But as a man in his 70s now, I am starting to finally face the the ritual of losing my power i am going through that transition i am no longer as strong as i once was yeah i am feeling my age i mean i'm fine i'm 72 everything's cool i can walk a mile i can do all of that but i can hear the clock ticking and that tick 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 is part of the ritualistic universe finally forcing me into some sort of ritual that will eventually change me to dust. And I've not thought about it until now. 
So for men, it comes way down the line. For women, it's much earlier. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because this this lack of rites of passage and our stories, fairy tales and folk tales talk about that. They talk about someone being tested. And, you know, like the old European folk tales, they have an element inside of them trying to teach you how to be a good human being, right? So there's the third son. Think of the the three sons as a demonstration of mind, body, and spirit, or however you look at them. But the third one, who's universally known to be stupid and you know, like nobody pays attention to him. But when he's going out into the world carrying his small packet of lunch, and there's an old lady sitting by the side saying, share your lunch with me. The other ones go by going, oh, get your own lunch, you know. But she is representative of, are you going to listen to elder wisdom or not? Are you going to actually respect elder wisdom? And if you do, you get a gift from it. That's what those tells are telling you. Don't run past the person sitting by the side of the road who could be your helper in disguise. Be kind to people. Share what you have, and they will share what they have. These stories are, are actually trying to help us to be better humans. And the question is, if we don't have rites of passage, then we have to wait for the ticking of the clock to, to force us into that moment, which comes for everybody as they're getting older, the, uh-oh, there's not much time left moment, so what really matters right now? When in actual fact, there's a time earlier in your life you could say, what really matters? What is mine to do? That question is so cool and challenging. What is mine to do? And we can ask that question any time in our lives. Yeah. And yet when the stakes go up, that question becomes maybe not easier to answer, but certainly more useful to answer. And there are de definitely stages when different things are important. Like I noticed for a lot of women, I've seen them when they turn 50, is that moment when they go, I don't care what anybody thinks anymore. Now is the time that I stand up and be myself. And I've noticed when people hit 70, there is suddenly that turn from, I remember talking to a friend of mine who said, now I'm 70 and my ego wants me to go and follow all these invitations. And my spirit wants me to reflect and withdraw. And I'm stuck in the middle. So it's interesting, these kind of waves of, you know, paying attention to where you are in the wave. And can you be wise on the wave you're on instead of throwing it all away or following some pretty bobble that doesn't really matter later on? So say that again about the question your friend was asking in his 70s. My ego wants me to say yes to all these invitations. My spirit is asking me to withdraw and reflect. So coming back round to the beginning of our conversation, here you have a prominent leader, someone who's recognized. How does that person, or how do any of us, learn how to listen to the story that's being told to help us mentor ourselves as elders? Like, how do you move which direction do you choose? Because, I mean, maybe it's more productive to go in the direction of the ego. Maybe it is more exciting, not a negative thing. Maybe we have only so much time left and I have all this wisdom to give, so I'm going to say yes to all these invitations. Or how do you know the other voice is the one that is more magnetic? What do you do there? How do you listen? You've got the cornerstone of the absolute question right there. Are you listening? Secondly, what are you listening to? You can look it up in the dictionary. There's no definition of success. There is not a standard definition of success. 
There is a societal definition. You know, when I turned 50, I wrote myself a little piece called No Markers in the Visible World because I realized I didn't have a husband. I didn't have children. I didn't have a house. I didn't have a career. Not part of a standard religion. I didn't have a lot of money. So I could have said, you know, so part of me was quite sad. I've, I've reached 50. For some reason, 50 was my big birthday. Like I was never 49. I was almost 50 for an entire year. There was something in my psyche that said to me, at 50, you should have been a success in your life. I was not born to have the ordinary life. So I remember distinctly my, my interview for permanent residency in New Zealand. And she said to me, do you have a house, a husband, or a boyfriend? And I realized that was the order of magnitude, that a house was far more stable and prestigious than a husband, which was better than a boyfriend. But any of those things would have meant I was serious. And when I said, no, I'm in New Zealand for my career, she almost literally fell off her chair. Are you listening? And what are you listening to? So in the United States, we have a society that has an addiction and a focus on youth, which is why we've mostly made our elders elderlies. My mother once gave me a book that was entitled, What Are Old People For? If we were in a different culture, if we were in the Japanese culture, then when we got to be the age you are, you would be expected to be working as a mentor, as a wise person, giving your service to the community and, and what you have experienced, because that's valued and valuable. There's a role for that. There's a call for that. There's an expectation of that. But that's not what we have in this society. The society is very focused on youth. Therefore, the focus of it is quite adolescent. So my question is, am I listening to the siren song of all of the magazines and the media that tell me I should be running after youth? Or have I tuned into my own radio station, my own spirit, which is also broadcasting a message to me and saying to me, here's what you could offer the world. Here's your unique thing. You know, I, I, I love that the poets said there's a U-shaped hole in the universe that only you can fill. Rumi quite categorically said, be yourself. Everyone else is taken. How do you become yourself? That takes deep listening and it takes paying attention. Your life is already telling a story. Is that the story you want to be telling? That's the first thing you should look at. My life is telling a story. My actions are telling something about the story I'm saying to myself about what I believe is important, who I believe I am, and what amount of agency, and that means the ability to do something, do I believe I have? People have been born in the weirdest and most painful and strange circumstances and done miraculous things. What's the difference between them and the person that doesn't? It's the story they're telling themselves. I love the word agency. We are hearing it more now. It's fortunately fresh. It hasn't been worn out. Your friend, the important mentor, where is he now? How has he worked around these two different paths? Is he able to hear the quieter, yeah. more elder path? He began to think, as you do after a certain age, what is my legacy? This is a question for older times. What is my legacy? And if there is something I leave behind me in the world, or if I imagine my funeral and people are there, what are they saying about who I was? Because my legacy should be that I've been in the most amazing circles of conversations. And I would want people to tell stories to each other because that's how I'd stay with them. When I was a little boy, my mother would say, you are a part of all that you have met. 
yet all experience is an arch where through gleams that untraveled world whose margin fades forever and forever as you move. That was a quote from Ulysses. I've often quoted that line on this show. And the other thing she said to me, the only thing I require of you is to be yourself. And if you do that, everything else will work out. Of course, as you've just pointed out, Mary Alice, being yourself and discovering how one goes about that is a whole different proposition. It takes a lifetime to learn how to do that. And of course, you just mentioned, what will someone say at my funeral? You mentioned legacy. You mentioned agency. You mentioned your friend who is being called to relax now, not follow the ego so much. You know, we are in the elder time for us. And these are very potent questions to ask. And for the young people listening, people who are younger, any thoughts as we close for them and how they could move in the inevitable direction of these questions with a sense of verve, a sense of depth? Three things immediately arise. The first one is if you want to become a good storyteller and you want to learn what stories are and be able to have that as something that is a friend to you, then develop your listening. We're in a world and we're in a society that values talking over listening at this moment. But that means we've also been shouting at each other for a long time. So even more than listening, I value this word witnessing. And I often say to people, I'm inviting you to witness. And by that, I mean withness. Can you be with this person? Because you can listen a better story out of them than they ever thought they were going to tell by the power of your intention. You are powerful. Listening is love in action. So I think people are shouting because they don't feel like they've been listened to. And when I've been inside of organizations, I often have felt like people were like flowers in the desert waiting for the rain, waiting for the loving attention, which would say to them, you are, you are valued, you are seen. I want you to show up in your beauty. Please bring it because that's what we need. We have the longing to belong. That's why there's longing in the middle of that word, belonging. So the power of your listening could change the world. Because the person who can truly listen has presence, and that is something that is invaluable. Not only that, if you stay silent for some time, lots of times people think you're wiser than you are. That whole thing about listening. Secondly, can you learn to love yourself? Because if you can love yourself, you can love a bunch of other people too, and boy, do they need it. It's not about searching out there for who's going to take care of me, who's going to Who's going to give me the love I need? You have to give that to yourself. I've heard people who are psychologists saying that we're waiting for these words of encouragement and love from other people, but our brain listens to our own voice. You need to tell yourself what you've always wanted to hear. You need to make your own story, make it make sense. And then the last piece is that I think one of the most important things we could do is move away from ownership and move into stewardship. The word stewarding comes from the Scottish clan system. The Scottish clans had a steward who was responsible for the wealth of the tribe, clan, and distributed it according to need. So when you steward something, you don't own it. It owns you, actually. So I've talked to people who got a special piece of land, and I've had some of them say to me, 
I supposedly own this piece of land because I had to do that legally, but it actually owns me and I am in service to it. So what is that thing that has your name on it? The thing you cannot not do. And you can steward anything. You could steward a child. You could steward a street corner. You could steward a dance move. You could steward a piece of music to bring it into the world in its beauty. You stand for it. What are you standing for? Like, don't sit around, stand for something. And that could be anything. And that's your unique thing. So what's your call? What is that thing that absolutely kind of grabs you by the shoulder and won't let go? If you follow that, you will find your life. Mary Alice Arthur, thank you so much for allowing us to listen to you. And thank you for listening to, to me and exploring this. I really, really do appreciate it. And give us your website before we go. My website is getsoaring.com. So G-E-T, getsoaring, S-O-A-R-I-N-G.com. And you'll find me there with things to offer you and things to talk about and love to see you. So thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you too. And there you go, my friends. Thus concludes my conversation with Mary Alice Arthur. Her website is getsoaring.com. And I love the idea of soaring when it comes to storytelling, and that is, of course, what Mary Alice was talking about. As Mary Alice pointed out, your stories live inside of you as much as they do on the page when you're reading a story. Your stories also help you to understand the world and add some meaning to your existence in the world. What kind of stories do you tell yourself? Are your stories the stories of your public persona or your private persona? Or are they a mix of both? Likely a mix of both, I suspect. And the stories you are telling yourself are likely the stories you're telling the people you encounter in your daily life. And when you think about it, you often maybe have two stories going on. One you tell the public, the public being maybe your family, your friends, your community, and then the story you tell yourself, which is more private. On a personal note, I've always told the story publicly of how much of a traveler I am, how much I like to roam around and look at the world and how the world is always calling me to go out and come see it. I even wrote a poem that starts, the road is in love with me. She comes turning out of my childhood, twisting through my morning, interrupting my picnic. So I romanticized the idea of me being a traveler. And then when COVID-19 came around and I came out to Taos, where I am now, and settled into a roomy Airbnb art studio, I discovered I enjoyed being in one place, maybe more than I enjoyed roaming around the world. So my public persona was, oh, I love to travel. I'm always out there on the road. I can't wait to get back on the road. My private truth, or my private persona, was more Gosh, I love getting up in the morning, making a cup of coffee and sitting for an hour just thinking about things or jotting in my journal or maybe just staring out the window. This realization doesn't take away from my enjoyment of seeing the world and finding new places, nor does it take away from me sitting in the morning, sipping coffee and looking out the window. So from Mary Alice's Get Soaring point of view, the question seems to me, how do you combine the two, your public persona, your private persona? How do you put those together and make something that you can present to the world as your story 
in a way that, that has a full ring of truth. I love to travel. I love to go places. I love to look at things. But I also like to stay put. And I like to think and be quiet. So how do you put those two together? How do I put them together? How do we put them together? I mean, really, how do you find the difference? Sometimes we don't know the difference between our public persona and our private persona. Sometimes you may be so invested in your public persona that you forget to even spend time with your private persona asking questions about what do I really want with my life? How do I really want to live my life? How do I really want to tell the stories of my life? I mean, now that I think about it, you could simply tell a story to a group of people about how you tried to discover the differences between your public persona and your your private persona. That alone would make for interesting listening and certainly interesting storytelling and interesting exploration. Underlying this quest for figuring out the difference between public and private persona, underlying it, of course, the question of need. What do you need? What are your needs? Do you need love? Do you need recognition? Do you need satisfaction? Do you need peace? Come to think of it, you probably need all of them and more. The idea is to figure out which one you need most within the context of the story you're telling or the stories you're telling. When I first came across this idea of public persona and private persona, public needs, private needs, I was taking an acting class from a woman named Susan Batson. She had an acting studio in New York called Black Nexus Studios. I think now she's changed it to Susan Batson Studios. I was taking classes from Susan and the other teachers she had in her galley, not because I wanted to be an actor. I really just wanted to find out more about how to connect internally, how to connect emotionally. I was getting my MFA in poetry at Vermont College at the time and thought that acting classes might help me find my way into more truthful emotional connections inside the swamp of my psychology where I was hoping to wallow around and find something to write about. Well, I'll tell you, acting classes actually do a rather good job of inviting one into the swamp of the psychology to wallow around. And that's exactly what we did at Susan's class in her studio. And the work I did with Susan incorporated a lot of movement, a lot of work with the idea of, of animal imagery. What kind of animal are you? And when you can find your animal image, you can find your character. For example, Marlon Brando's animal image when he was playing the role of the Godfather was a bulldog with a bullet in its throat. And that explains why Marlon Brando was always talking like this, because he was trying to work his voice around the image of the bulldog with the bullet lodged in its throat. So Susan worked with that a lot with all of the students who came through. So there was just a lot of loose movement and focused work on presenting scripted lines and figuring out what the subtext was and all those things that come with acting. And we also occasionally would talk about different kinds of acting strategies. And this is where I learned about the public persona and the private need. From a character point of view, what makes a great performance is when the character has a very difficult time resolving the 
conflict between the private persona and the public persona, the private needs and the public needs. The example Susan used was Travis, the taxi driver in Martin Scorsese's movie, The Taxi Driver. Travis was a 26-year-old war veteran. He was back from Vietnam. The movie was shot in the 70s, New York City, during the summertime, also during a garbage strike. The setting alone would put you in the mood for some kind of conflict, a throbbing city, heat of the summertime, the smell of the garbage all around you, the disruption that the city was experiencing back in those days. So here's where the conflict between the public persona and the private persona plays out. Travis, played by Robert De Niro, was a 26-year-old taxi driver. He had been in Vietnam, returned, had PTSD, which expressed itself with silence, anger, and violent tendencies, which he tried to hold, hold back by driving around at night in his taxi, trying to avoid being seen, which of course fails because Iris, played by Jodie Foster, at the time a 12-year-old girl on the streets of New York somehow notices Travis. They become friends. Iris sees him and this undoes Travis a bit. He skedaddles back to his taxi and, and keeps driving around trying to avoid being seen. So here we are, the conflict between the public persona and the private persona. I want to be seen. I need to be seen. I need to be invisible. I need to be hidden. The two now began to fight it out in the movie. And which of the two are the most truthful? That's the question. That's the conflict. And then one night, the stakes go up when Travis picks up Betsy, a campaign manager played by Sybil Shepherd. Betsy and Travis become friends because he picks her up more than once throughout the movie, and throughout the movie he overlaps with Iris a great deal as well. So he's in that conflict, continuously going back and forth between invisibility and visibility. So this is what Travis works with throughout the movie, and the question in the film always remains the same. Will he resolve that conflict? What will Travis do? at the end of the movie, will he go into what he really wants most, which is to be seen, cared about, and loved, or will he retreat into the night, into the hot New York scene, into the smell of the garbage, and just remain obscure and drift off into nothingness? I won't tell you what choices Travis made at the end of the movie. I will tell you the movie is a classic. And the great line that comes from the movie that Travis said, looking in the mirror, trying to figure out who he was, you talking to me? Are you talking to me? You talking to me? It's a beautiful line because when you look in the mirror, you have to ask that question. Are you talking to yourself? And if so, why? And what answers will you find when you look in that mirror? Public persona, private persona. And when you look in the mirror and you ask yourself, you talking to me? You're naturally going to have all kinds of dramatic tension that rises out of your attempt to answer that question. And we may not be able to ever answer the question fully, but we can ask it and we can attempt to answer it in a way that might be meaningful for us, for you, for me, and we can put those answers together in some kind of story that could well be meaningful for us 
something internal that we can tell ourselves. And also, it would be interesting, as I said a little earlier, to tell your story of the quest, you trying to find out the answer, standing there looking at the mirror. I think I would like to hear it, and I bet other people would too. So if you're wondering, what kind of stories could I tell? Maybe you can start there. And I'm sure Mary Alice will tell you if you ask her, she'll say, get soaring, get that story soaring. So the next time you look in a mirror, say, you talking to me? and see what kind of stories pop out, see what kind of answers pop out. On that note, my friends, we have arrived at the end of our time together. So thank you for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio, Fertile Ground, for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you're interested in more of Walter's music. If you would like to reach out to me, Nave at JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. I would love to hear from you. Also, if you would like to join me on Saturday morning, any Saturday morning, for a writer's gathering with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston. We call it the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week. It's noon Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Mountain Time, imaginativestorm.com if you would like to be part of that. The door is always open to anybody who shows up. We would love to have you, imaginativestorm.com. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVMFM. We couldn't do it without you, wpvmfm.org. And most especially, thank you once again for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio. I really do appreciate it, and I hope you tune in again next time. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.